But let's read God's Word together this morning. And we're going to read, first of all, from the prophecy of Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 35, and reading from verse 3. These words. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where the jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, no ravenous beast, they will, all be, they, they will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return, and they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And then we're going to read from the letter to the Hebrews that we have been going through. We're, we're nearly at the end of the letter to the Hebrews. We'll finish it up next week. So we're reading from chapter 12 of the 13 chapters, and we're reading the first part, the first 17 verses of chapter 12. The writer has just taken us through in chapter 11 all the figures from the Old Testament and pointed out how each one of them went forward with God's promise, but not knowing what the future held and how we know in Christ far more of God's future. And here is what the writer says next. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood? And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline or, or lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not, then, then you're not, sorry, if you are not disciplined, and everyone 
undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that, you, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for the sake of a meal sold his inheritance rights as his oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, he wanted to inherit this blessing, but he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Rugby fans? It was 2019. It was at Twickenham. It was a Calcutta Cup. It was 30 minutes to go, and predictably, Scotland were losing. They were five tries down. In fact, they were losing so much that the English crowd were predicting as they screamed out, 100 nil. 30 minutes to go, and it looked like it was all over. Although those that have followed it will remember, that was not the final result because Scotland came back and scored and scored and scored and scored till they took England to a draw and they retained the Calcutta Cup for the first time in 35 years. One question. What on earth kept them going at that point when you're five tries down, such a short distance to go, and it looks so hopeless, and you haven't won it again for 35 years? What keeps you going? And the answer is two things. One is hope. It's often the hope that kills you. But it's the hope that keeps you going. And the other thing is sheer bloody discipline. The team is going to work together and focus together and it's determined and it's going to keep going. We come, as it were, in the book of Hebrews to a group of Christians who have hit half time and they're exhausted. Their morale has fallen. It's hard going. And a lot of them want to throw in the towel. And as we've said, as we've gone through this whole book of Hebrews, all of us, if we love the Lord and have followed Him, know exactly what that feels like. That image that we've been using is actually the one that comes from this passage where it talks about feeble arms and weak knees and flagging athletes. Will they go the distance? They are tired. They are tired of the cost of following, the rejection, 
the family, the friends that they may have lost, the opposition, the ridicule, the persecution that they are experiencing. They're tired of following Jesus. In fact, they are tired. It's not so much that they're doing awful things, but they're tired of trying to do the right thing. Tired of resisting sin. Someone had said that uh, in a telephone box, someone had written, are you tired of sin? Read John 3.16. And then someone had penned afterwards, if you're not tired of sin, phone Juliet on 397. <laughs> Been slightly facetious, but that whole idea of exhaustion where you just want to give up. And that's where they were. And I'm aware as, as a congregation just now, I, 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 and as a Christian people at the moment in Scotland, it's tempting to give up. We are not being persecuted, not as some Christians around the world are being, but we certainly sometimes feel we're getting nowhere. It's difficult. Our friends don't understand. Our social group don't understand. There's so many other things we could be doing. It's hard to get up and keep going. And when we look at how Christians are often treated in the public sphere, I want to avoid politics just now, but one of the things that has been refreshing watching this leadership debate, whatever your politics are, is to see a Christian being willing to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. And has taken brickbats for it. And whatever you think of anything else she said, stop and think what that's like, because I suspect most of us know either from the experience of doing it or from the fear that has led us not to do it, what it would be in our workplaces or the places that we are to actually start to be explicit about our faith. And we're tempted just to shut up and give up. And that's where the Hebrews were, the cost of standing for Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 is like I guess the coach taking the team into the locker room at half time. How's it going, guys? Oh. And then he starts to give a pep talk. And what he's doing in that pep talk is exactly what I'm doing just now. He's going to preach a sermon, he's going to take them through the Bible, he's going to start to remind them of what they believe. And there's two things that are stressed in chapters 11 that we led last week in chapter 12. And one is hope. And the other, sheer discipline. It's the goal that you're fixed on. It's the hope that you're fixed on. The last chapter we went through the Old Testament. If you missed it, you'll find it on YouTube. But there it was as he went through the, the figures from the old of Noah, of Abraham, of Sarah, of Moses, of Joshua, of Gideon and the prophets. And he said, these guys, they went out on a limb. They kept going with God. They blew it sometimes. They got it wrong sometimes. And they didn't have a clue what lay ahead. But they believed the promise that they'd been given and it kept them going. And we have an even greater promise in Jesus. We know far more about what God's plan is. We have a much greater hope. And here, this second chapter, he starts off by talking about a great cloud of witnesses. The vision here is of athletes standing in a stadium. Oop. I've gone too far. Oh, never mind, I always get it wrong. Athletes standing in a stadium, and they're running the race, but they might look up and they might see this great cloud of witnesses. It's the folk on the stands. 
But it's not that they are looking up there because the stands are cheering them on. Rather, it's this. He says, look at the people in the stand. There's Moses. And there's Abraham. These are all the retired athletes that you're looking at. This great cloud of witnesses. And it's not that they're witnessing you. You're looking at them and they are testimonies to what happens when you trust the Lord and go the path. And by the way, when you look at that great cloud of witnesses for us, it's also to look at the communion of saints. Because as we look at all the figures through Christian history, we also look up and we recognize a few faces. The people who have prayed for us, the people who have shown us the way, the Christians that have inspired us in the past. That is the great communion of saints. And it helps us go on, go on, go on, go on. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles and let us run with perseverance. And then he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, by the way, that little bit of advice, fix your eyes upon Jesus, is always uh, great advice. See, if you're ever feeling disillusioned, just read the Gospels. Just think about what Jesus has done. If you're ever wanting to know how to treat people or how to go on, just look at Jesus. Just keep looking at Jesus. It's always good advice. And he says two things about Jesus here. He says that Jesus ran the race marked out for us. And he goes on in the next part to say, Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Now, a pioneer is just one that goes on before you. And that's always what Jesus does. What Jesus' command to us was to follow him, wasn't it? And we sometimes miss this as we think, I'm a follower of Jesus, and that means I do X, Y, or Z. To follow Jesus, this simple, means to follow Jesus. It means to look at what Jesus is doing and say, that's what I want to do. So look at how Jesus treats people and say, that's what I want to do. And Jesus as we saw with, when we talked to the children, he, he didn't just simply say, oh, oh by the way, go that way and, and live that way and it, it'll be hard. He actually showed the way. He went obeying the Father's will. He went to the cross himself. He suffered for what was right. And so he asks us to do what pleased his Father, the joy that was offered to him, the joy of, of, of knowing as you live your life that, that, that the Father is pleased. And for us, that's that joy of, of hearing those words at the end of our life when, when the Father will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy, the joy of your Lord. That's what you keep your eyes upon. But it's not just that Jesus is the pioneer of faith. He's also the perfecter. Because Jesus didn't just simply say, I'm going to do some hard stuff and you're going to do it too. He said, no, I'm going to the cross that you might be perfect that you might be forgiven. I'm rising again from the dead that as I have overcome death itself, so you will overcome death. And that means that yes, there is discipline and there's hard work as Christians, but it's not that we do all of these things in order that we might get something because Jesus has already done that for us. And therefore, we run the race in real hope because we know that the prize is guaranteed before Jesus has gone there for us and gone to the cross. And it's as if the letter to the Hebrews is saying to these folk, you can keep going. 
even if you've fallen on your face and you've failed, because Jesus has done everything for you. That as you get up and you fix your eyes on Him and as you run the race in order to get to the end, you know that He's standing at the finishing line saying, I am bringing you here. I am bringing you here. And there can be no doubt about that. So, two things. Hope, but a hope that leads to discipline. Now, this passage is absolutely full of sports metaphors, which uh, don't really work for me because I'm, I'm, I'm not much of an athlete, actually. You wouldn't have guessed, would you? But just that bit at the beginning when it talks about throw off everything that hinders as you run this race. Get rid of every obstacle as you run this race. You know, that includes the guys that shave their legs to get that little bit of extra speed on their bicycle. They do that, do they? I'm going to ask the people. Do they folk actually do that, don't they? Wow, that's dedication, isn't it? I'm going to do everything that possibly helps me run this race and finish it. And it ends in, in, in verse 12 and 13 where it says, Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees and make level paths for your feet. Now, this is interesting because sometimes when we see a a race analogy, those of us that are not athletic don't really relate to that because we think of all these guys that watch their times and do their exercises and they're extremely fit and they're going to run this race, this 100-meter sprint, and they're going to get there with the best time, and we think, no chance. I'd be the guy that falls over and everybody runs past them. You know what I mean? But actually, that's not the image that you've got here. I want to put a different image in your head. Some of these runners are running and they're limping. Some of these runners are running, and they are flagging. And so think much more of this image, not of a 100-meter sprint, but of a marathon, a popular marathon. And yet there are guys in this marathon and girls in this marathon that are going to get the best times and shoot past. But there's a whole lot of people that have never run a marathon in their life, and they're dressed in a funny suit, and they're just trying to get there. And their only goal is not about the time. It's just, can I, can I get to the end? That's it. That's all I want, to be able to say I've, I've, I've run in the, the, the marathon and, and I got there. And see, when people have entered into it like that, if somebody is flagging, it's not that everyone's just going to go past them. People are much more likely to stop and say, look, we'll get there together. We'll limp over the finish line. We'll, we'll, we'll stand together as we do this. And suddenly, as I hear that, and of people getting there with a limp and a bad leg and they've got a stitch in their side, I can, I can relate to that much more. Can you? As we try to run this Christian race, it's not just for the most fit. The point isn't to have the best time. The point is to compete. Where one follows, somebody picks him up that he might get to the finish line. And the out-of-shape bloke that's never run a marathon before is going to have just as much joy when he gets there in the end five hours later as a guy that ran the marathon in 36 minutes. Can you run a marathon in 36 minutes? Not quite, but you know what I mean. It sort of works. It's not the Olympics. It's more like the Special Olympics. Yes, excellence. Yes, improvement, certainly. But it also includes the weak Christian, the unlikely Christian, the lame person. All are being encouraged to run this race. 
And you know what it says also here is, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled. You know, one of the things that has become quite important in our culture is to make our buildings accessible, isn't it? And therefore, we look around, and if somebody's left something lying around in an aisle, we move it because we don't want somebody tripping. If somebody's parked a car in a disabled bay, we tut because they're going to stop people being able to get where they need to get. And that's because what we are in the business of is removing obstacles from one another. This Christian life isn't somebody coming along and saying to the tired person and the limping person, well, pull your socks up and try harder. It's actually much more about a team where people are saying, I want to help you get over this finish line. I want to help you. It's not an assault course that's designed to weed out the weak. Rather, it's a team-building exercise. And we read that as we read from Isaiah 35, and I think that's probably where this verse comes from in Hebrews, where it says, strengthen feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come and He will save you. And here is the image, the image that God is coming in order that we might make the race, that we might run the path, that we might be able to live our lives for Him. It's not just that Jesus died in order that, well, we'll get to heaven in the end. It's actually that He came and He gave His Spirit and He put us into a church family in order that we would be able to live our lives for Him in the meantime. Paul puts it this way. He says, God sent His Son to die on a cross that you might be saved. If God will do that for you, Won't He give you everything else you need to live life for Him? Everything else that you need to live life for Him. So be encouraged in all of that. And yes, this is practical. Part of the passage that we're not going to spend too much on talks about discipline. Well, anyone that's ever been involved in athletics knows that discipline is important. In fact, anyone that's ever raised children knows that discipline is important. Sometimes we get it wrong. But discipline isn't just about punishing someone that gets things that are bad. Sometimes discipline is about sending people to school that don't want to go to school, sending people to the room in order that they might study or they might get some sleep. And that's, in a sense, what this passage is saying. You know, some of the things you're going to go through as a Christian are tough, and you don't understand why God's doing that to you. Sometimes we will never understand why God's let us go through whatever it is we've gone through. But we do it in hope. We do it in hope because God has called us to run this race and He has given us what we need to get there. Just as the people in the Old Testament didn't know the full picture, neither do we. But we are to do it together. Make every effort to live in peace. And here the writer is talking to the church. What does that mean? Does that mean just be nice to each other and don't upset anybody? I I, I don't think it means that. This writer actually is going to upset some folk. He's going to say some hard things. But rather, it means that we are in the business, verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. 
we are in the business together of making sure that everyone knows the grace of God in the Christian congregation. That means that people would experience and know love and forgiveness and second chances and third chances, that we would show each other patience and kindness and not bitterness. One of the things that tires Christians out is when they come to church and there's nothing but discouragement. There's people making them feel small. There's folks saying things and picking them up on things, and there's folk grumping about this, that, and the next thing. But rather, we should be graceful to each other because that encourages each other to keep going on. And it's interesting, it talks about the root of bitterness here. What do roots do when you're trying to, when you're trying to get somewhere? They trip you up, don't they? They trip you up. And here's the thing about roots. The folk that they're most likely to trip up are the people who are struggling. The people who are, who are almost hanging in there. The folk who are just about out the door of the church. The people who are, who are not sure about it. Those are the folk. The folk that are doing fine and church is great and I'm, I love church and all the rest of it. Will just, they will just bounce over the roots. But these roots of bitterness will destroy other people. We should not be putting roots down but removing obstacles. What does that mean? It means that we should not be in church fighting our own little battles about what we want. We shouldn't be doing that with other Christians. We shouldn't have those bitterness things that are on. You know that, that, that wonderful musical Frozen sometimes has the very best advice where, where what's the song? Let it go. <laughs> and I sometimes think that is, that is really good advice for us sometimes as Christians. Stand back, see the bigger picture of what God is doing here and let it go really doesn't matter. And I think as we do presbytery planning, we're going to have to do a bit of that as well. Let it go. Is it going to mean change and some of the stuff that we love going? Let it go. Because what we don't want to do is have bitter roots that are going to trip up folk, discourage folk. New folk come into a church and they're, gosh, if they're fighting about that and they can't agree on what it is, what's the point in this? But rather, we work together to help each other get over and get there. Like that lovely image in the Gospels. Remember the story of the lame man? And he had to get to Jesus, and he couldn't get to Jesus, and his four friends were going to knock down every obstacle. Not just carry him there, but they got there, and they couldn't get in because of a crowd. Well, made a hole in the roof. Everything they could, because the thing that was on their heart was that their friend needed to have an encounter with Jesus. And anything that got in the way of that needed to go. Can we be that sort of church where our big desire for each other is that we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And anything that gets in the way of that needs to go. Let it go. And then the final image that is given in this passage is the bitter roots is Esau. And when I read this at first, I thought, why are we bringing Esau into this? We've done all the Old Testament guys in the last passage, and Esau's not a great, a great hero, but here's the reason. Genesis chapter 25 is a story about soup. Now, if you don't know the story, let me remind you of the story. Esau is the elder brother, and therefore Esau should get the inheritance by the customs of the time. He should get God's blessing. He should be the leader of God's people. But Esau has been out there, and Esau is one of these impetuous guys. He's been out there hunting and doing things, and he comes back into the house, and Joseph, his younger brother, has made some delicious soup. 
Now, there's some great soup makers in this, con- in this congregation. Um, you make some good soup. But he's made this fantastic soup. And Esau comes back in and he says, I'm starving. Give us the soup. And Jacob says, wily character he is, I'll give you the soup if you'll give me the inheritance. And Esau, in a moment of thoughtlessness, just simply says, yeah, fine, whatever, just give us a soup. What's the story about? Well, is it that Esau is the patron saint of fast food? No, it's that Esau is the patron saint of the short term. I want satisfaction right now in life. That's why it's pinned here with sexual immorality, because that often goes together, doesn't it? I want this now. This seems good now, and I'm not looking to the promise or the long term or what God has got in store. This is the moment, and this is what I want, and I'm going to have it. And that's all that's important. And here's the problem, that a lot of us live our lives like that. You have a fight with somebody, and yeah, there's a big picture. Yeah, there's a relationship. Yeah, there's a goal. Yeah, your brother's in Christ, but right now you're wrong and I'm right. And you're not getting away with that, and you're not treating me that way. Or we know we should be reading our Bibles and and, and spending time with the Lord Jesus, but right now the telly's good. I know I need Christian fellowship because I'm beginning to find it difficult, and I need that encouragement, but I can't be bothered going to the meeting because... (sighs) Or there's some project, and I could get involved, and I could give time for that, but you know, I'd rather do this. Or the Lord is putting on my heart that I should care for someone and see them and be their encourager that helps them over the finish line, but you know what? Am I not entitled to some time off? And so we put the short term over the long term, and Jesus never did that. And so this last warning is that we be people who have our eyes on the long term, on the goal. It's not so much about losing faith or or falling away. It's about living our Christian life in the fullness of the hope that we've been given. So two things here. To be renewed in hope, the sheer promise of what will happen, just as sure as those kids will get that chocolate. So all that God has promised us will come to us because of Jesus. But running the race together with discipline just now, helping and supporting each other, building each other up and not giving up, but encouraging each other, as Hebrews will say elsewhere, more and more and more. Amen.